This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. The weather outside is frightful. Actually, the weather outside is not the only thing that is frightful. Have you checked out the markets lately? Followed crypto's collapse? Seen the number of layoffs going around? Money is already reported to be the number one source of stress in the United States from a Pew survey. Throw in these sorts of conditions and, well, the strain on individuals and their financial service providers is going through the roof. In today's show, we talk about two opposite ends of the spectrum. First, how technology plays a role. and The second is how empathy plays a role in volatile markets and how do we bring calm. In the first half, it's Michael Kitches and I talking about the digitization of the financial advisor world. And in the second part, frequent guest Theodore Lau and I talk about empathy and technology. Are they really at odds? All right, it doesn't feel like that long ago that the robots were coming, technology and robo-advisors, right? Like was gonna just massively change the way financial advice was delivered. That reality has not come to pass. And then there was this utopian view of how technology was going to impact this trusted advisor relationship, both from a wealth management and you know from a banking perspective. And you have a very different view in terms of like, is it utopian versus dystopian when we talk about where technology plays a role in trusted advisor relationships? And so one, two, three, go. Like, is technology utopian or dystopian, Michael? Well, so it's an interesting way to frame it. Uh, like I, to me, at its core, technology is is utopian. I just I like I am, I love my tech. I love my toys. I love the efficiency. I love the productivity. I love all the cool things that we can do. I love how tech changes the world. So I feel like I need to sort of set that as a baseline. Acknowledge that's your that. that's your disclaimer. Is you're not an anti technologist. Well, like, I made a tech company. Like one of the things I own is a company called Advice Pay. We do payment processing, compliance oversight systems for financial advisors charging fees. So like I made a tech company. I'm very pro-tech. But, right, like big old but, like, but there's this version of how technology has been pitched into the advisor world for, yeah, as you said, kind of like the, the past five to seven years after after the robots went direct to consumer and realized that direct to consumer wasn't work because there's a client acquisition cost problem, they said, hey, all these advisors would use this tech as well. Maybe we can cross sell it to advisors. And the robo tech went from a direct to consumer thing to like a B2B to C offering where it would leverage up all of us as financial advisors so that we could serve more clients. And it, it started to build up into this, at least it was pitched from the technology on this kind of utopian future where the uh, where a financial advisor can serve hundreds of clients and have record-breaking productivity enabled by all of this cool technology. And when I listen to that, as someone that spent 20 plus years in a career as a financial advisor, that is a dystopia to me. And and it's and it's dystopian because I think it it misunderstands what the advisor role actually is. Like, what do we do that the tech doesn't do? At the most fundamental level, right, the reason why advisors do what they do and get paid what they pay, what they get paid is around the relationship that gets formed between the advisor and client. Like, if you just want to buy a thing, technology and the internet will sell you a thing at a lower cost than I can deliver it to you as a human being. Yeah. Once you get a human being in the middle, we foul it all up. Like you're paying me for expertise and you're paying me for uh, a, a relationship. I mean, that's right. If you, if you want to go find a thing and you know what it is you're looking for, right? Very transactional. You can go to the internet. You can go find the widget that you're looking for. Correct. Like the advisors tend to come up in roles where either my, my, my life, my problems are too complex for me to just solve with a Google search and a query or the stakes are too high 
that I can't afford to do this search on the internet and get it wrong. So I, I want to pay for someone that's got expertise. And in order to do that and apply expertise to my individual situation, like you got to really get to know me and my situation. And as we like to put it, my goals, like my goals and my financial circumstances and depending on where else you go, like my investment picture, my tax constraints, my family dynamics, like there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. And at the end of the day, like, look, uh, you know, I can look up on the internet what to do. Uh, you know, I can look up on the internet how to exercise and lose weight. A lot of us still hire personal trainers because at some yes. point, like I need a relationship with another human being who can guide me on what to do and hold me accountable to do it that I actually get it done, right? If the if the technology thing was going to do what it's going to do, personal trainers should be out of business instead of having thriving businesses right now because some of us are fine to go on the internet and do it ourselves and more power to them, but a whole bunch of us want a human being to help. And so when the driver around why does the human advisor actually get involved is about relationships and applying expertise to a relationship where you have to really understand the client that you have a relationship with to do that. And then you have to get them to do something and make a change, which takes time to have the conversation and to explain the recommendation and to get their buy-in and to get them to move forward. If my job as an advisor is to do that for three, four, 500 clients per advisor, as some firms are trying to paint this tech-enabled picture, where it just, you get down to brass tacks really quickly. 2,000 working hours a year, give or take a little. Most of us advisors at best are going to spend 60 or 70% of our time, even in a client-facing things. I got management, compliance, professional development, other stuff. I can only spend so much time. I can't literally go meeting to meeting to meeting. Like a lot of us have had you know, days where you've got like six to eight hours of meeting stacks, kind of draining. You yeah. can't do that to me five days a week, 52 weeks a year, particularly what I'm supposed to do in-depth, deeply analytical, sometimes very emotional relationships with clients. You start winding that backwards. And what you get down to is for a lot of us as advisors, like it's hard to have more than maybe uh, uh, six to 800 hours of like really meaningful client meeting interaction time where we're doing something deep. And we publish some advisor benchmarking studies on our on our platform and truly find like most advisors actually have more than 20 to 30% of their time in actual client-facing meetings. Maybe you get to 35 or 40% of your time. And so if I have 300 plus clients and you just start doing the math to that, I, I meet with my, I would be meeting with my client two hours per year, all in total. I'm not, I can't deliver life-changing advice and get something of someone to change the trajectory of the financial decisions that they're making by connecting with them for two hours per year. Like it doesn't work. The relationship is so shallow that it doesn't work. Like I can deliver a tidbit of advice, which you could also just get off the internet. If you're really paying for a relationship and someone vested in you, it just fundamentally doesn't work. There's not enough time in the relationship. Like I can make myself super efficient with technology, but even the technology boils my advice down to something I can write on an index card and hand to a client. They don't do it when I hand them the index card. Like there's more into advice delivery and relationships. And it just literally takes time that doesn't work when you stack up technology with this idea that we're going to have hundreds and hundreds of clients, like you just can't have a relationship. Well, let me push back on that. There's a guy, I agree and I disagree. Let's start with where I sure. disagree because I always love to disagree with you because you put me in my place. I would say if you ask me who knows me best and if she were to ever listen, the answer is my wife, of course, you know, followed by my mother. Neither one of us, I think, has ever listened to my podcast, so I'm safe. But I would say Amazon actually knows me best in terms of who I am, what my preferences are, what I want and what I do. And so this is, and I don't have a relationship with a person at Amazon who says this, but I would say Amazon knows me better than absolutely any one of the bankers or RIAs or others I have because they have access to data and a level of intimacy in a way that I would never tell, you know, my financial advisor. So Nira, you know, you're Bob, if you're listening, it's like, of course I share everything with you. I'm not sure my shopping habits with you in, in this regard, right? So technology plays a really important role there in uncovering things, the difference between a spouse versus enacted and other behaviors. So, so how do you reconcile so, that? 
So here's the distinction I'd make. Amazon knows you well, and it knows me amazingly as well. I think they visit my house five or six days a week. Uh, uh, Amazon knows us incredibly well to give us the things that we already want. Advice almost universally is about helping us do something different than we currently do. So, so I'll give you an example of this. So like client comes in and says, I'd like to retire at 65, need, need a plan about how to do that, right? It's sort of like the quintessential traditional view of advisors. So if we just give the advisor amazing enough tech, the client can onboard into the tech software, identify all their goals through the software. The software can do the analysis to explain what the, what the answers and outcomes are. And then the, the human being is like a... a, a, a a human mouthpiece for a piece of software that says, well, let me explain to you, Mr. Client, you're supposed to um, save $800 a month and and uh, take your social security at 65 and do all these different things and invest this way and you'll be able to achieve your, your goal at 65. Great. Like that's a traditional framing. That's like an Amazon version of financial advice. Yeah. Here's what happens when I actually sit across from a client. Why do you want to retire at 65? Like, I'm just curious, like, where did that number come from? Someone like, told me that once and it's stuck in my head. And so I think, yeah, that's well, you know, I, we I feel like that's when people retire. Well, do you know how much you would need to actually make that retirement work? I mean, I can do the math to calculate for you, but like, do you have a goal for it? And let's say, you know, some like, I, I need a million dollars. Like, well, cool. Like, that's a, it's a great thing to accumulate too. But like, just curious, where'd the million dollars come from? Oh, well, you know read in a publication, heard it somewhere, seems like a nice round number, like, well, cool. If I could show you a way to be able to retire at 62 with only $800,000, would that be of interest to you? Well, yeah, like if I could do it earlier and with less, that would, that would be great. Well, you know, a lot of people approach retirement assuming that they're just going to stop completely with what they do. But, you know, you, you work... Uh, you know, you work in a consulting industry where a lot of people like you, in my experience, are actually able to do that on kind of a limited scale back part-time basis, even when you're quote unquote retired, because you've still got all those connections and you've still got that expertise. And often that's valuable for three, five, seven, 10 years after you retire before kind of your, your skills get a little bit of rusty. So if I could show you a way to retire part-time to live the consulting job you wish at only 20 hours a week, and do that at age 55, and then transition into a ramp up where we get social security going at 62 for you, we push your wife's out to age 70 so we can step up there. Uh, uh, then you only need about $600,000 to retire. And so how would that sound? Like part-time retirement, doing only the consulting work you want, drop all the management duties you don't want, you can retire 10 years earlier, need 40% less. How's that sound? Yeah, well, yeah that's, not the, that's not the index card answer from that, the internet that gets slid well, across the table. Well, that's not the end of the current answer. And the reality to it is most people, it's so like most people don't know what their goals are. We had a lot of financial advice these days, particularly investment realm, like to start with basically like, tell me your goals and, all, and the computer will split out the answer for it. It presumes someone knows what their goals are. Most people have no idea what their, what their goals are. They've never lived a future that they haven't lived before. Even beyond that, just most of us don't, like, we can't do compounding math in our head, right? Just it's, yep. compounding math's really hard to do in your head. So most of us don't even realize what might be possible in the future as we start adjusting and moving levers. And so if I'm going to take you from, I need a million dollars at age 65 so that I can quit cold turkey and get out of this job that I hate, and I can get you in the span of a conversation to, I'm going to retire at 55, drop the management duties I don't like, keep the part-time consulting work I do like, got to plan out the entity structure of how to shift that and do it tax efficiently. If I do that, I can dial back my retirement date by 10 years, but then I need to plan, I'm going to save the consulting income, maximize into an individual 401k, coordinate with the timing of my social security, my wife's social security, come up with a health insurance transition plan during the 10-year gap until Medicare begins. If I'm going to go through all that conversation and, and get your buy-in to how all that stuff works that you've never seen and don't know anything about, and I've got to educate you on, and you weren't even talking about it because you didn't know it was possible until we did the one-hour conversation to help you realize that retirement at 55 as a part-time consultant was possible, that whole thing, like, Amazon doesn't figure that out for you. Technology doesn't figure it out for you because it's all prep. It, it all starts with the with the realization that 
Sometimes we don't actually know what it is we're working towards until we see what's possible and have a conversation with someone who opens our eyes to new possibilities and new perspectives and then helps us take the steps to change our behavior to actually do it, right? So you get the personal trainer piece that comes in on an ongoing basis about how I actually help you have the conversation with your firm to get them to let you go with the management duties and take the part-time consulting gig when you're ready to do that transition. Oh, and then and then the whole thing changes in two years because your mom gets sick and now you need to be a caretaker for her. And now we got to redesign the plan all over again because life comes at you pretty fast. And by the time you go through all of that, I can only do that with so many human beings. Part of it is because no matter how fast the technology makes me, my client will only have realizations and changes in perspective and, and, and eureka moments when the light bulb goes off above their head and they realize they want something different and then get the support that they need from me to transition through that before we even get to just all the really wonky technical tax and investment and it's legal and other stuff that we might get into in advisory capacity. It just literally takes time. It's not my time of if only the software could number crunch it faster. These are conversations with other human beings and you can't go faster than your client is going to go. And your client only goes as fast as they can process a conversation with another human being. So I want to talk about the role of where technology does fit, because you know what you described is we're automating the wrong thing or we're automating something that does not give you the leverage we believe. But before we shift to that, I want to talk about that works for the large clients, the wealthy clients. And part of this promise of financial technology across the board has always been around this idea of inclusion, that if we just apply technology to it, we can bring more people into this bespoke financial service world, right? I think that was part of this idea of I could you know, support 300 to 500 clients as an advisor. You know, it's because I have the technology, I can go down market. But what you just described is the exact opposite, which is I use technology for some of this, but I'm going up market because those are the people who can afford, you know, to pay the fee. It makes it worth my while, you know, that I can support myself in doing that. So how do we solve this for the mass market then? So, so the first thing to understand when you get down to the mass market and like, I just, it was a, an unfortunate chuckle to me when the robo-advisors showed up. 10 odd years ago of just how much they didn't understand the financial advisor world. The reason financial advisors don't serve the masses has nothing to do with the efficiency of technology. The reason financial advisors don't serve the masses is super simple at the end of the day. The average client acquisition cost of a human financial advisor is two to $3,000 per client. We've published a whole bunch of research about yeah. this on the, on the Kitsis platform over the years surveying out to advisors and studying their actual time allocations and what they do and how they market and what they spend in their time costs and their hard marketing costs and the rest. Average advisor has a client acquisition cost of two to $3,000 and experienced advisors, it's four to $6,000 because their time gets really expensive when they build deep expertise. Yeah. And so at the most basic level, if my client acquisition cost is three grand, Guess what? We have a lot of trouble serving clients that are less than about two dollars to $300,000 because when we apply a 1% fee to that, we get to a $3,000 annual fee, which allows me to cover my client acquisition costs in a single year. That's how the math bears out. Like It was never, advisors serving the masses was never an efficiency in the delivery of advice problem. Not that we can't get more efficient about it. We'll probably talk about that in a few minutes. But the fundamental blocking point, like robo-advisors brought an operational solution to a lead gen problem. And, and that's why it didn't work. And literally the lead gen cost is what broke most of them. Mm -hmm. And when you look at what ultimately worked, I mean, we were writing about this back in 2012, that the ultimate blocking point for robo-advisors is they're a do-it-yourselfer solution that's going to have a lead gen problem. And their primary competition is other do-it-yourself platforms with better lead gen systems like Schwab and Vanguard. Yep. And sure enough, three years later, the first two people to launch competing solutions were Schwab and Vanguard that have better client acquisition costs for a do-it-yourselfer audience. And so the fundamental problem of advisors serving the masses, it's not an advice delivery issue. There are some advice delivery constraints, like we will have a problem yep. in moving down market at some point. 
But when you talk about advisors serving the mass affluence and sort of the lower end of the mass affluent, those households with you know tens or a few hundred thousand dollars of assets and net worth, the primary blocking point for advisors is nothing to do with technology to make advice delivery more efficient. The whole thing is a giant lead gen problem, and unfortunately amplified by the fact that uh, you know financial services, low trust industry, the advisory industry is a huge problem with people that put financial advisor on their business card, but literally legally they're salespeople. Like their job is to work with an insurance brokerage or bank firm, uh, and they sell products for a living, and that's how they're compensated. And so consumers figured out a long time ago. Most people who show up as financial advisors sell me products. I was looking for advice, not products. So I'm just going to put the wall up against the financial advisor, which amplifies the cost for us to break through with actual advice offerings and has lifted up the client acquisition costs for everybody and become like a self-perpetuating negative cycle on it, which is why, you know, part of part of what we advocate for a lot of the businesses I'm involved with is raising standards on advisors. We're one of the only segments of the industry that wants higher standards for themselves, like actually wants higher regulatory standards because higher regulatory standards increase trust. Increasing trust brings down client acquisition costs and increase and bringing down client acquisition costs is the primary thing that opens up the financial advisor marketplace to the masses so that you can engage an advisor like a doctor where you don't have to ask them, do you have a license to give medical advice? And did you ever go to medical school? Which you have to ask in the advisor world because that like there are no standards like you can get an advisor license with a high school diploma and a two hour regulatory exam and the diploma is optional yeah well in no one understands what those acronyms mean versus i think absolutely everyone understands you know the difference between Correct. an md a physician assistant and an RN, right? Where well-defined roles, and I'm happy to go see and, one versus the other, depending what well, problem and, I'm and trying the, to solve. And the medical industry, granted, they've got some of their challenges, but they did figure out a long time ago that like, you probably don't want the doctor to work for the pharmaceutical company, because then it turns out every time you're sick, it's always a drug from their company. <laughs> that's, well, that's I mean, what it, it, this goes back to something else you know, that I was thinking about as you were saying this, you know, the adage of, you know, if you are not paying, you are the product. Yep. Right. In terms of where this plays in in financial advice, which some of the regulation is taken care of. But I do want to pivot us then. So if the, the answer is increasing standards, which enables more human relationships to go down market, where does technology fit into this? Stacks. So, so, so aside from literally technology as a lead gen thing, which is actually an interesting segment unto itself, we publish a, a tech map in the advisor community and like our, you know, the hottest section of the map with the most active startups right now literally is like marketing and lead gen tech for advisors hmm. because there's a lot of opportunity to use tech in interesting ways that helps to scale, uh, scale lead gen and bring down client acquisition costs. But that aside, so when you think about the advisor realm, I would say, so think about it in three domains. There's the back office work. There's the front office, kind of the client meeting activity. And there's the middle office, which in the advisor domain is kind of the financial planning, analytics, and uh, 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 and all the work that we do to actually like analyze the situation, craft the client's recommendation. So when I get to the back office, Tech's pretty simple here. Automate, automate, automate. Like just make all my back office staff go away. If I was in an advisory firm right now and I'm back office staff, I'm concerned about my career in 20 to 30 years. I think most of those back office jobs will increasingly vanish to technology. We probably won't get rid of all of them because you know someone has to manage the robots. But uh, uh, the back office just gets slimmer and slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. Nobody wants to spend time hitting buttons to do money uh, transfers and cashiering and trading and account opening and product applications and all the stuff that we do that's just very paperworky administrative that technology is super awesome at automating in the long run and and I think will that's not a huge portion of the typical advisor's mm-hmm. PL if you look at the PL for an advisory firm overhead expenses in total for us are typically no more than about 30 to 35% at scale. Some of that is just my rent and actually the core software itself. My administrative staff that sits at that level often is no more than 10 to 15% of my, of my cost structure. So 
at the end of the day, like automation will help. I can't take that to zero though. So I'm, I'm, I'm only going to save so many points off of my aggregate cost structure and the cost of advice with back office automation. So opportunity, big space, not negative on back office automation, but like this is not the breakthrough to bring down advice fees by 50%. That's a, that's a lead gen client acquisition cost problem, but tech can automate the heck out of the back office. When you get to the middle office, it's different. Middle office is all about the sophistication and the depth of the analyses that we do. Advisors tend to live with the domain of clients who have greater complexity than what people can solve for themselves on the internet, right? Just at a fundamental level. Otherwise, you you go look it up on the internet or you find some online internet calculator. So technology in the middle office isn't about going faster. It's about going deeper. How do I do deeper, better, more sophisticated analyses for my clients to move up market into the areas of complexity that they can't solve for themselves on the internet? And and so the interesting effect that what shows up with technology in the middle office is the tech doesn't make you faster. The tech makes you better. It's all about deeper and better. And, And it's important because I've seen even some of the companies in the financial advisor space missed this over the past couple of years. There's been a big movement over the past few years to try to make financial planning software that's simpler and faster. Uh, We sort of call it like financial planning light. Hey, we could serve clients in the middle market if only we had simpler financial planning software that you can complete faster. Except again, it misses the problem. If my problems are actually that simple, I'll just find a free calculator on the internet. I don't need to pay a financial advisor to do data entry into a simple calculator, on top of which Mm -hmm. the primary reason I'm not using an advisor is because I can't even figure out which one to use. And it would take me more hours to find and vet and interview advisors Mm -hmm. than it would to just search for the darn problem on the internet. And it's not that complex. So I think I can solve it on my own. So every company that's tried to build financial planning light software for advisors has persistently failed one company after another after another because the consumers don't want to pay advisors for lights light analysis that they could do on their own. And from the financial advisor end, I mean, oversimplifying a little, there's basically two types of advisors. Those who have sold products for a living and don't care about doing financial planning. So the truth is you could give them software that makes planning take 10 seconds. It's still 10 seconds too long. If I spent the past 20 years successfully selling insurance, mutual funds and the rest and making my money without doing a plan at all, because once you have the conversation, like clients want to talk about it and that takes time that you don't want to take if you're a salesperson. If you're if you hang your hat as an actual advisor and give advice, you don't want to give light advice. You want to give deep advice. Like you differentiate on your depth and the complexity and your expertise and your ability to answer questions that the internet doesn't have. And so planning light software sits in this no man's land. And there's been just a lot to me, a lot of wasted tech investments into planning light tools, not realizing that. That doesn't work in the advisor domain. It either needs to be do-it-yourself tech, and there's a there's a space for that, or for the advisor, and it's about going doing deeper and better analyses. So tech in the back office automates. Tech in the middle office is about deeper and better, not faster and automated. All right. So where is the role of tech in the front office in the client relationship? So tech you know, COVID has changed office, a lot there. Yeah. So tech in the front office is all about the relationship and engaging the clients in the advice process of the relationship. So when I look at how this is showing up in advisory firms today, uh, we're actually in the midst of doing an upstate to our uh, financial advisor productivity study. We put these out every other year around what advisors are doing. And the monstrous shift that we've seen over the past four years, in essence, is the financial planning software is actually moving out of the advisor's office where it was for the past 20 to 30 years. And it's showing up in the conference room as a collaborative tool with the client. So the old version was, let me give you all your data, do the number crunching, figure out what the answer is and come back to the answer. Now, increasingly it's, well, let's put the planning software up on the big screen in the conference room or up on the Zoom screen when we screen share. And we got a bunch of sliders and let's start moving the sliders and see, well, what would happen if you retired at 62 or 55 and you started working part-time and you got the consulting income and then you did the social security here and your spouse is there. And we can start modeling that live in real time. So so I don't just have to go in and prepare a whole bunch of different scenarios and say, here's what happens if you do this and here's what happens if you do that. I can make a much more engaging technology experience where the clients use the technology live with me 
because my job is not bringing them the answer. My job is facilitating the conversation and helping them see the possibilities. And then when they decide what pathway they want to do, I'll come back and do the nerdy expertise thing on like, here's the tax strategy, the retirement strategy, the health insurance strategy, and all the things that go with it. Now, see, tech is automation in the back office, depth in the middle office, and engagements in the front office. Yes. And I think that is, at least where I see the, you know, anyone who's in the relationship business hasn't fully figured out that relationship is not about shaking hands and necessarily sitting down together. Relationship is a level of intimacy. And like you had described, in understanding what you do and engaging you when and how you want to be engaged. Correct. And and I think one of the things that was a, at least from the financial advisor side of the industry, a big like collective shock for the industry was we went through the pandemic and everybody had to convert virtual and we did fine. Like a business that has been a long time predicated on, you know, breaking bread and handshakes uh, uh, and hugs for some of our clients. Like suddenly we're all virtual for, for two plus years and it went fine and the client stayed and we still got new clients and we were still able to grow and we marched forward. Now I will say like, as we've come out from the pandemic, it's been really cool to get to go back out to some clients that we haven't gotten to hang out with for two or three years and see them in person. There's a whole dynamic and a professional one and and uh, and personal side. When like when you meet someone for, for online and you get to know them online, and then you get the first time meeting in person, it's like I feel like I know you because we spent so much time together, but I've never gotten to sit across from you before. So <laughs> we're getting a bunch of those moments that are really cool as well. But I think you are like you articulated well an important point that relate like yes relationships are not just a function of how much like in person and handshaking time that we get but they are a function of intimacy that forms from a connection and a relationship that gets built over time and and so like the reason why that's so important is in part it gets back to uh kind of the dystopian dynamic around tech if you leverage me up to a bajillion clients, then just the, the literal mathematics of it is there's not enough hours in the day, week, month, and year to actually have that level of intimacy for a relationship with clients because relationships take time, right? Like think about any relationship you have that you've been trying to make better. The one thing I don't hear most people say when they're thinking about that relationship with a friend or a loved one where you're saying like, I haven't enough invested enough into this relationship. I, I really need to invest in the relationship more. No one says like, well, I got a great idea. Let's just make all my relationships with that person more tech enabled. And then I'll have a deeper relationship with my my friend, my long lost sibling, that parents has been estranged. Like you want to read, you want to get repair that relationship. I mean, everybody goes to the same place. It's time. It's It's investing time into that relationship. We don't repair our relationships through tech. And not that tech can't facilitate and augment our relationships. And I like texting my friends and what's happened, Slack and all the different ways that we can do cool communication. But those are those are channels and mediums through which the relationship activity happens. You, you can't say, well, I'm going to have better relationships with all my friends because we're going to use tech to have better relationships with all my friends. Well, I think we can. I know you're going to have a strong view on this, but what I'm hearing you say, though, is it doesn't supplant the human in that trust in the relationship, but it actually, you know, I love the augmented, you know, phrase when you talk about augmented advisor is actually, you know, text chats with my best friends does improve our relationship in terms of like, there's just some things I want to do via technology versus with a human. Oh, absolutely. But to say like, hey, um, I used to spend hours talking to my friends, but now we have better relationships because I just spent three minutes texting with them doesn't work. Now, it might be that, hey, I used to hang out with my friend a lot and like he moved across the country. I didn't get to see him as much. So now I like text back and forth and talk to him on the phone for an hour or two. And that's how I get the fulfillment in the relationship. So absolutely, the tech can become the medium. But what happens when we get those deep relationships? Like I spend a lot of time texting with that person or emailing or communicating or whatever it is. Like it, yes, the technology can be the communication channel. And I don't want to be negative on all the cool ways that technology enables more in different ways to communicate. The point to it though is 
it doesn't replace the time that has to get invested into the relationship. I don't get a better relationship because we used to go out for dinner once a month and now we just text message for, for a couple of minutes every month. I still have to actually put time into the relationship. Now, it might be a bunch of texts or phone calls or breaking bread or hanging out or all the different ways that we do it. But the time has to go into the relationship somehow. And the the to me, like the the dystopian part of this tech-enabled hyperproductive advisor who has a bajillion clients is it's not just saying, I'm going to spend a lot of hours with my clients over all these different communication channels and mediums that technology facilitates. It's built around the idea of if the technology is awesome enough, I basically don't have to spend any material time with these people. I can just the technology spits out an answer. I give them the answer. I deliver it through the tech-enabled communication channel, and I'm on to the next client. And yes, like you can serve up a bunch of information that way, and you can give people the answers that way. But if all they're looking for for is information and answers, like just get rid of the human. Like just make that self-directed yep. technology and let that happen. When you get back to why does the client still hire the human? It's moved past that. And if you try to leverage tech too much, you don't augment the relationship and augment the productivity. You break the relationship, which ultimately undermines the productivity. And, and that's before you just get to, there is a secondary effect to this that human beings actually have like fundamental physiological constraints uh, or neurological constraints on relationships. So there's there's some fascinating research about this that comes from the sociology anthropology world. A, a researcher named Robin Dunbar who did research and found like there's a particular segment of our brain that defines the 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 social cohesion units of a species. And so some species have a very large segment of this brain and so they organize into very, very large herds. Some animals have very, very small segments of this brain, so they organize into very small units. The, for human beings, that part of our brain is correlated to a personal network of about 150 people. That just, that, that's about where, where the research comes out. And if you actually look at this historically, this maps onto literally thousands of years of humans that military units have been approximately 150 people going back for millennia. Uh, they're like, uh, uh, you know, rural tribes uh, that anthropologists recently discovered. And it turns out they figure out all by themselves, untouched by civilization, that when the village grows to more than about 150 people, you have to break into a second you village to, yep, because the social cohesion of the village stops breaking down. And even the digital realm, like the average person on Facebook has like, I think it's 152 friends. So even in the digital realm, it translated over. Now, for advisors, part of the reason why we're so successful at what we do is that we form relationships at this level, right? For a lot of advisors, like we get invited to client personal events, like we get we get pretty deep into their lives sometimes. But if my brain literally can only handle about 150 of these before I just start losing track of the relationship with the human being, like mm. I can't remember your kids' names in the background about you and what we talked about last. And you know, you can feel that in a relationship when someone doesn't really understand who, who you are anymore. They've forgotten who you yeah. are. Like I only get 150 slots. And the reality is that as an advisor, as a human, like my clients can't have all 150 because like my, my parents and my family and my, and my friend friends occupy a portion of that. And so even when you look in the advisor realm, if you look at a lot of the advisor benchmarking studies, the average number of clients per advisor from the small firms to the huge firms, from the ones that work with the mass affluence, the ones that work with the bajillionaires, all tend to top out at 60 to 80 clients per advisor relationship. Might be 150 clients because it's an advisor and an associate on a two-person team. But when you do the math, we start topping out on individual client relationships at about 60 to 80 with remarkable consistency across the advisor spectrum until you get to the super ultra high net worth realm where the numbers start to come down because you're just like working with decamillionaires and up who are like, I need a little bit more time from you because I need you to do the math on whether yeah. I should buy or lease the private jet. It's like, okay, that's going to take us a little bit of time. But when you, when you get out of that realm... Just the human brain can only handle so many relationships. This is why even when we look in the advisor research, what happens is advisors get more tech and get more efficient. They don't tend to stack on more clients. They tend to move up market. They can say, well, 
you've made me so efficient now. I'm saving so much time that I'm not going to have 80 mass affluent clients. I'm going to have 80 millionaire clients who yep. pay more in fees. I can charge more as an implied hourly rate, even if I don't charge by the hour. But like, I can work with more affluent clients, handle more complex issues. My clients require a little more time, so I can invest a little bit more time into them per client. But I don't necessarily take on more because it just gets exhausting to try to be like game on fully invested into that many different relationships. And to me, like that becomes the second part of why this tech-enabled advisor with three to 500 clients becomes dystopian. There's not enough hours for the relationship to be meaningful. And the truth is like my brain can't handle that many relationships. Like it just literally gets exhausting to try to maintain that many relationships with that many people on an ongoing basis. And so you kind of get this split of, okay, if you can make the tech that awesome, like just make it self-service, have it serve thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, right? Because tech does self-service really, really well. But then when you get back to what's the human's role and what does the human do, you're sitting back at a relationship layer that has a fundamentally different value proposition. And so a lot of the focus to me has been like, we're, you know, like we're trying to, we're trying to use tech to turn humans into lightweight robots. Like just let robots do robot things. Let robots humans- be robots, which they're good at. And I think a key part of what you described, right, is recognize what needs to be self-service and tech enable that and automate what can be automated, but don't expect that you can replace the human in a trusted relationship when it comes to the advice given, and, right? Maybe in the DIY and, side, and, but that's it. And, and just with the with the problems that get more complex, right? I think about this relative to my to my like to my bank, right? To my banking relationship. When I call my bank, I expect a very senior person who has a lot of expertise and a lot of authority to get things done. Because anything else, I just expect the technology to do for me. Like, I'm very good at using my bank's app and my bank's website and all the rest. So like, if I'm calling my bank, I don't want an administrative service person who can read me off a screen and read a script and, and you know use the internet for me. I want someone that's much more senior and capable who can actually solve my problems. And so even as I think about the banking realm, I get it. Banks have some other segments besides me that they got to deal with as well. But when I look at this as like, you know, active, right, I'm a good bank client. I'm an active business owner that's that's growing dollars and uh, uh, and has a lot of complexity. When I look at it from that perspective, like I either want tech or a very, very high level human and and basically nothing in between. Because what's in between, to me, that's the part that gets washed out by technology. The better the yeah. tech gets, the more sophisticated the human I need for sophisticated things. And the and the middle in between is what is what gets squeezed out. But you don't try to turn the humans into superpowered versions in between. You get the in-between out with the tech and you let yes. the humans handle the really, the really complex stuff that that remains there, which to me, ironically, is is really ideally suited in a banking environment, because that's just, that's where the center of our cash flow is. I, mean, I, I spent my career in the insurance and broker dealer and RIA channels of the traditional advisor world, but I've always said, like, if I could, if I could build a vice business from scratch with no regulatory constraints, I would build it in a bank. Yeah. I, you know, actual relationships and not like cross-selling wallet share, all the different products, but like, you know, advisors, you know, we sort of traditionally charge 1% of assets. A lot of advisors now are even charging a percentage of net worth for truly holistic advice around the client's entire picture. And so when I think about that, like, what would it look like to have a model where I meaningfully provide advice for a half a percent of your net worth to make the other 99.5% more valuable? If I can do that from the basis of the center of your cash flow, which is your banking relationship, it's the ideal place to to build that kind of model to provide the most meaningful advice and the most meaningful relationships where you can get rid of the product discussion entirely because I'm literally getting paid for the relationship. And to me, just that that's a that's a gap in and of itself that, you know, I, I even look at this from my end as a consumer that that shop for this. Like I don't feel like I can actually find banking as a relationship service in the modern in the modern market the only people yeah. i talk to want to figure out how to cross sell me more uh, and pick up more wallet share the advisor side does it we're built for it 
but we're actually very limited because we don't have access to the banking relationships in the brokerage and insurance and independent channels. Fantastic. Well, I think that is a great place to wrap as we talk about you know where technology fits. And I love the spectrum that you outlined for us. And if people do not subscribe to your research and what you do, where should they be finding you? So kitsis.com is the best place to find all of it. We post our research there. We publish a blog and a podcast out to the advisor community, a technology map of all the advisor tech that's out there. And uh, you can get more about my background, other tech companies and entrepreneurial endeavors I'm involved with as well. Yeah, that is K-I-T-C-E-S.com. And that'll be in the show notes as well. Thanks for joining us today. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate the opportunity. You may already have payments embedded into your software platform, but do you have flexibility around how those payment experiences are created? What about control over your pricing or ability to use your own branding? Chances are you probably don't. Discover WorldPay for platforms, a payments platform that puts you in control and puts your software customers first. This all-in-one payment facilitation platform offers more than just embedded payments. With WorldPay for Platforms, take advantage of a full set of solutions, including professional managed and advisory services to enhance your business. Make your software even better with a solution that easily integrates and adapts to your needs, helping you create experiences beyond payments. Discover the possibilities you can unleash with WorldPay for Platforms. Visit fisglobal.com slash worldpayplatforms to get started today. So are your holidays stressful? Like, what, what's it like in the Lao household? Do you, do you guys get stressed? I don't get stressed, but I think I get, I stress people out. Um, <laughs> good, <laughs> I, I tend good admission. Good, yes, good admission. I know well, my shortcomings. That's important, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the current market situation, I think there are a lot of people more stressed this season than ever. Yeah, the markets are up. Anyone who is playing in crypto, not probably feeling so great right now, uh, was thinking, <laughs> it spoke at a um, pre-COVID conference where the head of one of the big brokerages said, you shouldn't have more than 10% of your portfolio in crypto. And I was thinking to myself, I don't think you should have 10% of your portfolio in crypto. But you know, one of the promises of FinTech has always been around inclusivity, but part of the pushback has always also been around, oh, but technology is cold. It's not personal, right? When we displace the human, and I can't think of anyone better to talk about empathy than you around, you know, how do we even begin to think about the human that sits, you know, at the other side of that screen or that mobile device when we build financial products? It, it's, um, well, that's a loaded question, uh, Jason. So <laughs> go, I, I, <laughs> go. I, I think, I think, but that's exactly what you just said, right? We tend to overcomplicate things. The other side of the screen is human. The other side of, of my screen right now is you is two humans talking to each other, regardless of the medium in the middle with two humans. So I, I think that's the one thing we, we forget oftentimes. Let's take the PFM tools, for example, right? We said, well, you know, you need to budget. Oh, forget about the envelope. We'll just give you a tool to say, this is how much I need for each category and be done. But mm -hmm. we forgot the fact that money is emotional. We talk about that a lot, right? When, when you have a wallet, a physical wallet, when you take the cash out, you feel something. When you see the wallets, the, the number of bills dwindling down, in, inherently, it would send a signal to your brain that says, hey, wait a minute, do I have enough? That cannot be replaced by digital, I don't think. And, and, and one of the reasons why it's still instilled on my kids that um, Tooth Fairy, New Year, all of that, it still comes with physical bills is exactly that. It's, it's humans by human nature, like you said, the word empathy. And yep. 
if we look at the current economic climate, right? That was how we started our conversation with, do you feel stressed? One of the things I often get asked, especially lately, is what have consumers done wrong? And every time when I hear that, I take a pause and I ask, why do you think inherently that consumers did something wrong? What if it's because they don't have the right data to take action? What if they don't have the right tools for them to make use of that data to take the correct action? What if they don't have the right data at the right time with the right tool for them to make the proper decision? Why is it that we often blame consumers while they're not educated enough to make the correct decision? They are not disciplined enough to not overspend. If you if you take a step back and look at how our industry have viewed consumer well-being, we, we talk about you know credit card debt going up. We talk about mortgage debt going up. We talk about with record inflation, how people's savings are dwindling, dwindling down. But below that headline is always what have consumers done wrong? And and I think inherently with that assumption is, I would say it's the lack of empathy. It, it ties all back to when things are not going right, when people, for example, are not in good health, financial health or physical health, we think, well, they are less fortunate. It must be a fault of their own. So recently I read a book and I'm reading it and I totally highly recommend it to everyone. It's called The Tyranny of Merit. I'm only a third through it because I read slow. But on in there, there is an excerpt I shared recently that says, the more we review ourselves as self-made and self-sufficient, the less likely we are to care for the fate of those who are less fortunate than ourselves. Because we think if my success is my own doing, then their failure must be their fault. And I think that's something that we need to understand more in financial services, especially in the business of helping people manage money. Absolutely around the money. And I think getting into the customer's mind, right? If you're a banker, you think like a banker and you tend to be a specific kind of person who has you know, a very good grasp of you know what their personal balance sheet looks like. And if you're a financial advisor, you know, you're well steeped in understanding you know, the power of compounding interest and where it fits, that we you know, inadvertently bring the biases in because we're blinded by our own experience. Absolutely, exactly. And, and, and that's the point, right? It's no different than when you and I go to a FinTech conference, we sit there and we're like, oh my God, we've seen this before, but we are also biased in, in our own world because we've seen it, we've done that. And we're like, well, of course, but we forgot the fact that there are a lot of those around us in different circumstances that might need a little bit of push, might need a little bit of nudge, or might be, you know, in, in different uh, environment that impact their decision-making. Yeah. Well, and I think there's another bias that we haven't pulled out is when we see those products that were designed, you know, by engineers, right? And they think in a certain way and can equally be lacking empathy. And so you have the technologists say, all we need is more technology and, you know, more data. And we have the relationship-driven professions such as bankers and financial advisors say, no, 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 it's all about more relationship, more relationship. We need the more human but what we're missing is in the background a behavioral thing. And you know, I want to call out actually um, part of the impetus for this was having this discussion with the CEO of Blue Leaf, John Prendergast. And we're talking about market turbulence. And so part of their platform, which is for advisors to collaborate and communicate with their clients. And advisors inherently don't like the automated weekly email that goes out. They're like, no, our customers will panic. But what Blue Leaf has shown is actually the opposite is more frequent communication that gives people a status check, quelled the panic, and heightened their engagement with the money, right? And so the reason I want to bring that up is there's so many of these things that we think we've figured out the solution to, but unless you actually begin to test part of it and how it impacts the behaviors, right? I think this is one of the problems in all of 
um, you know, education. All we need is more education for financial literacy. Now, the problem is not, you know, we need to build bigger platforms to deliver more information. We need to rethink how information is delivered. I agree. I agree. I, I think one of the things I like to say often is people don't choose to be poor, right? We don't like wake up one day and say, yeah, I'm just going to do everything I can to make sure that I stay poor. No, that, 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 that will be the wrong thing to assume. So given the right tool, given the right data, given the right prompt, I would think everyone will want to act in a way that, you know, will be positive for their future. And I don't know, Jason, if you've noticed, um, there is a trend, which I chuckle. Uh, I think it started in TikTok, but I, I might have seen it before too, is younger kids, uh, well, kids, rats, I'm showing my age, <laughs> younger generation, they are actually going back to the same way our grandparents used to budget, which is taking cash and putting them in physical envelopes as a way to budget their money instead of using the tools. There have been numerous studies that have popped out in the last year that show that a lot of the PFM tools that we have given to consumers, A, does not really work the way it's intended, and B, people still tend to overspend. And what the younger generation have figured out, and I think it's on TikTok too, if you, if you want to look at it, stuff the envelope or cash stuff to cash or something, that they are actually putting bills into different envelopes to budget. This is how I'm going to spend for food. This is how I'm going to spend for rent, et cetera. And it works because if the envelope is empty, guess what? You're done. Well, there's also another behavioral piece of this, that this is why it was Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, I believe, published this. You are likely to spend more and a significant amount more. I think it was like 12% more if you spend on a credit card because the, think of it as, you know, why buy now, pay later is so bad is like the, you know, NPV of purchase, if all of the pain and there is a physical pain associated with paying for something, well, if that pain is in the future, but I get all the pleasure of consumption up front, Right. And credit card was even worse because it turns out there's this impact around bundling that one big credit card bill is not as painful as a uh, hundred small transactions, right? And I think by nature, the, this envelope piece of it, not only is it tactile, but the pain is in real time, you know, associated with it. And it's a series of small, you know, it's a bit like, you know, if you have to actually leave your house to go get food every single time, as opposed to have DoorDash bring it, you know, right? Like we, inserting friction can actually be a very positive here. Yes, I am all for friction, um, especially since a couple of months ago, Deliveroo announced that they will be doing buy now, pay later for food delivery. Gain weight now, pay it off later. Yeah. Exactly. Let's gain all the weight we need and let's pile up all of the little food charges we need and uh, pay all of that later. Um, yeah. But I, it begs the question though, so have we done everything wrong? Yes, I think we have. <laughs> well, <laughs> That is the pin I drop mean, moment. <laughs> yeah. But, it's but easy I, as video. Go ahead. You know, I, I, I saw it with my kids. Um, and, and I think I've mentioned this uh, in, in, in other conversations as well. When I took the kids to Hong Kong, and I saw it twice, once this past summer and the other one before COVID, we were, when they were much younger, we gave them NFC watches. And they would just go around and get something and tap, pay, go. They had absolutely no idea, A, how much they spent. B, they didn't even think that that 30 seconds it would take for you to get the wallet out and take the cash out and go through all of that processing, that wasn't there, right? And and so there is something to be said about adding friction. Well, I mean, the, and the question becomes though, should we, do we as an industry have responsibility for that? Of you course know, you do. Well, it's easy to say, no, it's the consumer's choice. It's, you know, they, it's the small business's choice. They should be making their own decisions. But behaviorally, we're just enabling them to spend more to make bad choices 
You're giving you them did. a cupcake every day and then you blame them for having diabetes afterwards. Exactly. Right. And and again, I must clarify, I have no problem with buy now, pay later as a product. I have issue with all of the entities doing it out like candies, getting people to keep shopping, shopping without giving them the means to figure out exactly what they're getting themselves into, right? Well, and that's the problem, right? Is if I'm on separate buy now, pay later, depending on what merchant I am, I don't have it consolidated all in one place. You don't, exactly, right? right? And then you add that to student loan debts and car loan and mortgage and credit card and all of that. And the next thing you know, the consumer realized, wait a minute, what have I gotten myself into? And they had no idea. And and again, that goes back to empathy. And that was the one question I asked in, in one of the posts recently is, are we budgeting for empathy? And that's not just about you know going out and do something for Giving Tuesday or is the holidays, let's donate something. Is everything that we do, we need to go back and think about what, what does it impact? If we're rolling out X, who is it going to impact and what can we do to make sure we don't get them in a worse situation? And that's empathy is putting ourselves in their shoes and looking at what would I have done with this product and what can I do to make it better? I think we have to go a little bit further than their shoes, but also understand their mindset. Okay. Because back to this, technologists think like technologists, bankers think like bankers, financial advisors think like financial advisors. Just being in their shoes, I worry doesn't give us enough empathy because they can rattle off, well, this is what I would do in the Don't in we? This that's situation. why we talk about diversity, right? We have yeah. different people from different backgrounds that are working together. I think we perhaps maybe we need anthropologists to work in banks, behavioral scientists we have seen, right? So- why don't we do more? Why don't we have more people that understand the demographics better, that understand their mindset, understand what triggers them? And 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 I'm a big I'm a big believer of shared experience and lived experience, right? Because mm-hmm. I learned it from from my mom, and I've spoken about this before, is her upbringing as a refugee, and how the what she had to give up in her life because she had a big family and how her action was able to help the younger siblings do more in their lives and mm. and be more and achieve what my mom couldn't do, not because she didn't have the talents, just because she had to give up and sacrifice. So all of those create a different mindset and create a different perspective on how you think about things. And it goes back to, you know, self-made millionaires or you know what what we like to glorify and worship in the startup space is not just about grit it's also about chances it's about things that are out of control things that you don't get a say so you end up in a particular circumstance so what can we do as financial services to help them out so there was a recent um i think article that talked about how jp morgan bank of america um And Wells Fargo are teaming up and looking at how can they address fraud for Zelle, right? Things that were out of consumers' control. And for the longest time, they're just kind of like, well, we're not doing anything about it, but perhaps we should. Same as with mortgage rates is doubled from how it was last year. So what can we do more for consumers? Well, contrary in view, but I think... uh, interest rates going up may actually be better for consumers because it will promote more saving and put more pressure on the temptation to buy too much of a house. What happened to those who already have the house and they're on variable rates, right? I I think the US is a little different too compared to the UK because UK typically they're, I think the terms are like five years or so. In US, we tend to have 20, 30 years. So for those who are up for renewal, what are they going to do? The rates is doubled. You're easily spending at least 500 pounds or more yeah. per month. That's a lot. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go back and follow on the sort of, this is why we need, also need to test and learn. Yes. Let's place the bet here. Does increasing rates increase uh, 
consumer's propensity to save and buy smaller houses. We'll just have to figure out with Ron Shevlin how we actually go test that. Wait, a bank's actually matching up the rates increase? And not yet, but they're starting to. I mean, we, I, we're going to see the pig go through the python here, right? Where loan rates have already gone up. But, you know, you're seeing two and a quarter, three and a half percent, you know, for banks that are already deposit starved, you know, and some fintechs, you know, are out there pushing that, that, yeah, I think we are going to see, you know, you're actually going to make money by having it in the bank. Finally, I'm old enough to remember when we used to do CDs. Remember those days? And you get like, oh my God, what, five, six percent or even more? Oh, or more. (laughs) Easily, right? my My first mortgage was eight percent my first mortgage was 10 yeah there you go so right the world the sky is not falling anyway Theo, always appreciate you coming on and glad we could talk about empathy and the role technology plays thank you for having me that's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show breaking banks this episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.